him, okay. Ben, ben thinks that's a little bit awkward. Um, and I'm Ben. Hey, how's it going? Uh, for those of you that I have not had the privilege of meeting yet, like the video said, like I just mentioned, my name is Ben Dieterle, and I have the honor of being able to work here on staff at the Christian Life Center. And we're so glad and thankful that you're with us this morning. Um, so our prayer is that you would be blessed this morning by what you hear, that you'd be challenged in it, and that God would just use it in incredible ways in your life. And um, like you just saw, Josh isn't here this week. He didn't actually tell you why he's not here, um, but I'm going to go ahead and do that and let you know so that you can celebrate with him. Uh, this weekend, I believe it was yesterday, uh, Josh actually received his Doctorate of Transformational Leadership from, uh, let me get this right, uh, Baki Graduate University. So that is why he is not here, and then he's also taking a few days off. Much needed some time off for him and his family. So glad that he he's doing that. So when you see Josh, just celebrate that with him. He, he probably didn't want to mention, he probably would be, even be upset with me now that I'm mentioning that, but he's worked hard for the last few years to, to get that doctoral degree, and we also reap the benefit of that as well. So when you see him, just celebrate that with him. He's also in the last few years, for the last two years, he's, he's led us through many of the different things that you see within the church. So when you see him, just honor him a little bit and tell him congratulations while he's there with his family and celebrating. So uh, yeah, I am truly excited to be able to share with you this morning. It's, it's been a little while since I've been up here. Um, it's been uh, actually, I think, a few times. Josh is, does the majority of our preaching, so if you're new with us this morning, uh, this isn't normally who's up here. Josh is our senior pastor who you just saw on that video, and he does the bulk of our teaching. And uh, he couldn't be here, but I get the opportunity to share with you today, and I am really excited. And to be completely honest, one of the reasons why I'm really, really excited is that usually whenever I would preach a message, especially on a Sunday morning, I would get some positive uh, feedback. And some of that feedback was that, one, I usually talked too fast, and that, two, I usually went too long. So a lot has changed in the last two years... And I'm feeling confident this morning. I, that's just, I'm just being real. Now, if Josh sees this video and I'm not with you next week, it's because he let me go. So, but no, I truly believe that Josh is a very gifted communicator and we get the opportunity to hear from him and grow from him. But uh, I am excited to share with you this morning what I think is a very difficult uh, account of Scripture, a difficult uh, passage, if you will, a difficult story to kind of talk about because it raises a lot of questions. And, and today, specifically, we're going to get the opportunity to talk about um, the, the, the story of Noah, the account of Noah that we see in Genesis chapter 6. Actually, we're going to be looking at 6 through 9, so uh, maybe I need to take back that idea that I don't talk that long because we've got a lot of Scripture that I'm hoping to cover this morning just so that we can see from what is in God's Word, what actually happened and transpired. And, and, and so as we go through that, um, where, where we're at, if again, this is maybe your first time or maybe you haven't been with us for a little while, basically we are in the fifth week of a series that we've called In the Beginning. And basically what we're doing is that we're looking at the first chapters of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and really we're looking at the origin of all things. 
And so if you haven't been with us, I would encourage you, if you're interested in kind of hearing what we've been talking about, I encourage you to go to clcfamily.church, and you can actually listen to all the different messages from not only this past series, but other series that we've done in the past. And so I would encourage you, if you want to catch up, to just go ahead and read, uh, listen through those messages. You can also watch them if you're interested in that as well. So if you want to kind of get a full picture and you haven't been with us, I would encourage you to do that. I'm going to try and give a recap of where we've been to set up kind of where we're going so that you can see a full picture, but I I won't have the time to be able to give it to its full justice. So uh, as we started this series, we obviously looked at chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, that's where God kind of created all things. And if you were here that week, really what we did was we talked about the six different views of creation that that Christians kind of work through. And and there's a lot of different thoughts. There's a lot of different theories. There's a lot of different ideas ideas kind of floating around of how that came to be. But the reality is, since none of us were there, we just kind of, that's the best that we can do is theorize and kind of look at how God set things up and how they are. And so while there's a lot of different kind of thoughts in that, what we have to kind of acknowledge at the bottom line is that there was nothing and then there, there was something. And what we believe in that is that God is the creator of all things, that he set in motion everything that we now see. And in that, what we recognize is that before creation was, God existed. And that in and of itself is a kind of a a big idea to try and wrap your mind around, that before even time was, God was. And, and that's a challenging question for a lot of people, and it's something that's not really easy to understand, but, but that's what we kind of looked at, that there is a creator who creates. And it's also important, one of the things that were, was brought out in that first week is that while there is science and history within the Bible, that is not the primary purpose of God's Word. The primary purpose of God's Word is so that we, His children, would see the love that He has for us and the story that He's kind of placed us in, the bigger picture, if you will. And so that was the first week. The second week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, and that's where God kind of creates his masterpiece. That would be be us, mankind. That was kind of the climax of creation. It says that we are made in the image and in the likeness of God. And so God created Adam and Eve. He set them in the garden, and things were good. Things were perfect, just the way that he established. And then in week 3, what we talked about was how sin entered the world, how Adam and Eve made a choice. to to kind of leave what God had asked them to do, to to not follow his will, but to then kind of what they did was make their own choices and choose to walk outside of God's will for their lives. And sin enters the world, and we see how God wants to be in relationship with us, but because of sin, that relationship is broken. And and sin, if you haven't been with us, or like I said, your first time here maybe, and, and, and you don't really know, I would just say a simple definition of sin is simply missing the mark. And I think kind of that choosing to not do what God would call us to and doing our own thing is kind of the very core, if you will, of what sin is, is is missing the mark and not doing what God would call us to do. And so week three is, is pretty devastating in the sense that sin breaks the union between God and mankind, and, and we feel that disconnect. And then if you were here last week with us, we saw kind of sin continuing in its destructive course with Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, the first uh, two sons of Adam and Eve. And what you see is that as Cain and Abel both present an offering before God, 
it, it really Cain's wasn't really an offering that he was giving in a way that was honoring and pleasing God, but was in a way that just was nonchalantly kind of doing it, not really considering it or thinking or working through it. And, and then what you see is animosity from Cain to his brother Abel. And ultimately, if you know that story, Cain kills his brother Abel, and, and God walks them through that. So we're kind of picking up this passage uh, in Genesis chapter 6. So that was the first four chapters, the first four weeks, one, one through four. We're going to kind of skip chapter 5 this week, which is actually the genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah. And we're going to pick it up in a couple minutes, starting in, in chapter 6 of Genesis. But um, uh, just as I started to think about this, um, how many of you maybe grew up in church, or maybe you went to, le- before you raise your hand, maybe, uh, maybe you've seen a picture of this, or maybe you attended a preschool or a daycare or a school that had some type of depiction of Noah's Ark in it. Has anybody? Okay, we've seen that. Maybe your children go to a preschool. Okay. Now, if, if your upbringing is anything like mine, usually the depiction that you see of the account of Noah is something like this, right? It's kind of cute and cuddly, like you kind of think of it like a couple's cruise, but with animals and, and like Noah and his family, right? Like if you look at this right picture, like if you put big eyes on cartoon animals, they're just adorable, right? Aren't they? They look cuddly and super nice. Even this vulture that's on the roof um, is cute and cuddly, but I don't think anybody's ever looked at a vulture and went, oh, that's cute. Vultures are kind of weird. But if you're anything like me, I, I, when I grew up, I grew up in a church that in the nursery area, they had one of these depictions. And it was similar to these two. And I remember as a kid looking at that going, man, it must have been so cool to be on the ark. Like Noah got to pet all those animals. He got to hang out with them for like a week. And then that was it. They just all went home and it was awesome. But when you start to realize the context of the story of Noah, um, that mural and these pictures are really, really kind of out of place. Like, like that's more the destruction of the world is happening. Um, but I guess you probably wouldn't want to picture, put a picture like this at a preschool. Like, you've got destruction, <laughs> devastation. Oh, and then we got the cute little animals there, there too. Um, as I was looking for these pictures, I came across uh, a, a, an actual picture that is probably uh, relatively close to what actually happened, but it's also a little bit terrifying. Check this one out. I don't, I don't know if you can see that well or not, but there are people here in, in the waters, like, drowning, like, and there's some... Um, trees and vegetation and some uh, destruction here, and then the arcs behind that. And my first thought was, oh man, I really hope that this is not an animated movie that kids saw and are now in therapy because of. Um, That was generally my first thought. And then my second thought was, well, this next slide, that one's just, again, really inappropriate. You got cute and cuddly surrounded by death. So there's that. You can get rid of that before we, we get crazy. But uh, I, I think that when we look at this, we have to understand the, the story in context. Because I think while we, we may put uh, cute depictions and have ideas and, and try to explain that to children in a way that makes sense to them, I think that the reality of this story is, is pretty fearful. 
Like, it's pretty terrifying if you ask me. It's, it's challenging for me as an adult to work through. Um, there's some questions that kind of happen as I start to work through this. Why God would allow this to happen? And why, if, if God created all things and if he knows all things, well, why is it that after he creates and knows all things, why is it that what seems like just a short time afterwards, this destruction would happen? And why is it that he would kill the very things that he created, but yet there was salvation in that? And I know that God gives us free will, that he gives mankind the ability to choose, and that's, that's where we choose, whether we follow him or we choose to, to not. And I, but there's some questions in there that lead to some bigger questions, if you will. And, and then also the other side to that, too, is that I think that there's a lot of Christians that wrestle with and even come to the conclusion that maybe this isn't a truthful story. Well, maybe it's just kind of the idea about it, and that's really what we're supposed to take um, from that. But I think what you're going to hear as we talk about that today, and, and really what I don't want to do is I don't want to give you my convictions. I think that it's important for all of us to kind of wrestle through this this account, this flood narrative, and work through it in our own way, in our own minds, so that we can begin to understand and really begin to wrestle with why God would do this. To, to kind of actually sit down and think through that, I think is so important. So I don't want to just kind of hand you my opinion and my convictions, but I think what you may start to see a little bit as, as I talk is that I truly believe that the flood was 100% a real event. And I truly believe that, that God did it to teach us something and to show us something that is, again, truly terrifying, but also awesome in the middle of that. Uh, and so I hope to kind of do well today as I share that with you. Um, but there's a lot of different thoughts and, and a lot of different ideas that are kind of floating around this. In fact, as we jump into Genesis chapter 6, um, as you start to study that, if you've ever put any time into that, man, there's some crazy theories out there, some ideas about angels and some ideas about these, these giants that we're going to see in a second, that there's some bizarre theories out there. And I'm, I'm going to give you what I think is the best interpretation, what I believe to be truth. But I, I, like I said, I think that it's important for you to wrestle through that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say is uh, I would also say I would caution anyone who would want to dismiss the flood as a myth to be careful. And here's why. Let me just read what I wrote so that I can say it the way that I intended. I said, I think that God can do anything that he chooses, and he doesn't require us to understand it in order to accomplish it. In fact, when we see in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, when he's on the earth, he has mastery as he heals the sick, as he calms the sea. He had mastery over not just the natural, but over the supernatural as well. And so I think that God is able to do all things, that he can create life, that he can speak life, and he can even speak death and judgment. But continuing on, I said this, uh, to say that God cannot operate outside of what we know through science is a slippery slope that I believe can unravel faith. I, think, I believe that God and science easily coexist, and when they don't, we simply haven't figured out all of the wonders of God's creation. And so that would be my opinion as we go into this. I think you're going to kind of see that, like I said, leak out as we start to talk through this. And now with kind of all the disclaimers aside, I want to jump into the text. And like I said, we've got a lot of scripture verse that I want to get through this morning. Uh, and I'm going to kind of go through it in the beginning. What you're going to notice is that it's a little bit slower. I want to talk through some ideas some bring up some interesting points. But then by the time we get to about chapter 7, we're going to be reading 7 through 9 kind of as, as quickly as we can and we'll get you guys out of here this morning, hopefully before Josh normally would, and that way um, I get better feedback uh, the next time I ask. 
So here we go. If you have a Bible, you can open up to that first uh, book. It's in Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be reading the translation that I'll be reading that you'll see on the screens. It's also the translation that is in your, your uh, pew backs. The, this is the NIV version. So we're going to be reading it from there, starting in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1. And this is what it says. It says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with, or there's a footnote in my Bible that says, or my spirit will not remain in humans forever, for they are mortal, or another footnote says, or corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. They were the sons of God, where the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of great renown. So as we start Genesis chapter 6, um, I do have to allude a little bit to the genealogy and kind of what happened at the end of chapter 4 into 5 and then kind of starting in 6. And so what, what we see again in, in chapter 4 is that Cain and Abel, uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. And then what happens, we didn't have time to get into this last week, but then what happens is Adam and Eve have another child, as Josh alluded to on the video. They have another son who's named Seth. And what it appears to happen in this time is that there's kind of two distinct groups of people that start to form. You have the line of Cain, which tends to kind of go in the way that they were starting to go, in a way that they would pursue their own will and their own desires rather than God's will. And then you have the line of Seth that was pursuing God. They were making choices to follow him, to live uh, to what he'd called them to do. And this is what I wrote. I said, the line of Seth came uh, from the line of Seth, came what we believe the sons of God. This is the best interpretation of this, who according to Genesis 4.26 began to proclaim or call on the name of the Lord. They chose to live in a way that acknowledged God and most likely referred to as the sons of God. From Cain's line, there were the daughters of humans, or in other translations, it says the daughters of men. It's surmised that this group followed in the pride of Cain and chose to sin against God, not acknowledging him or calling on his name. And so what we have is these two groups of people that begin to to live into the world. They begin to populate the earth. And and that's kind of where we're going to jump from five to six and say, again, when it says, when humans began to increase in number on the days of the earth, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married them as they choose. So what we start to see is what was two separate distinct groups now starts to intermarry. And so while one group was following in the ways of God, the other group was choosing not to. As they start to intermarry, then it becomes a little bit more chaotic. Each man begins to do his own thing. They begin to not live in according to the will that God would have for them, but they start to be corrupted by sin. They start to live into that. They choose to to walk away from what God would have them do, and they walk in their own will and their own desire. And so when it appears that we have these two separate groups, but they begin to intermarry, and they invade the earth, and sin infiltrates every corner of man's heart. And from there, what we see is that God says that man has become corrupt. And this is something that we're going to see numerous times as we look through this story, that God says the wickedness of man or corruption of man, man has has been corrupted by sin, and sin to its fullest extent leads to death. We know that as we look at some New Testament passages, that sin fully played out ultimately leads to death. And so as God is looking at his creation, this is what he sees. 
what was two groups begin to intermarry, and then no one is righteous on the earth. And continuing on, it says, uh, uh, in verse 3, it says, My spirit will not contend with or will not remain in humans forever, for they are mortal or corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. At first glance, what it looks like is that this passage is talking about, okay, men will no longer live to the age that they, they were at that time. When you look at Genesis chapter 5 and you add up the genealogies that are listed there, the average man was actually over 900 years old. That's a crazy amount of time, and I don't fully understand what was going there. I have some ideas and some theories about what I think was happening, but I really don't want to dive into those theories and ideas, but really kind of try and look at the text and really allow the text to speak for itself and for God to convict you in the ways that he wants to speak to you this morning. And so as you look at that, men were over 900 years old, and at first glance it looks like maybe this is God saying that men will only live to about 120 years old, but it's believed that that this, instead of kind of being a prescription of what men will live to, this is more of a prophecy of the time, in the time that God would send judgment on the earth. So God is having a conversation within the Trinity, and, and he says that in 120 years, it says their days will be 120 years. And so it's believed that from the time that, that either God first thought it or spoke it, to the time that floods happened was about 120 years. What we know is that it was at least 100 years because as we read the genealogies and we read later in Genesis, what we see is that it took Noah about 100 years to build the ark. So it's a probably safe assumption to say that about 120 years is the time that God spent from the, the moment that he noticed man was corrupt to the time that he actually begin to bring judgment on the earth. And then the last thing that I'll pull out from those first four, four verses is the, uh, the, the Niflum. Um, in verse four, there's some crazy, crazy ideas. If you've ever looked into this, some crazy theories about what that was. But I think the best translation looking at the original Hebrew or Aramaic text is that that Niflum, wow, I can't say that. Hang on, let me take a drink of water. Niflum, um, the, the Nilephim were actually giants that possessed the land. There's only two recorded times in Scripture verse that they actually talk about them. The first is here in Genesis. The next is in uh, Numbers. And in Numbers, what you see is as God's people are entering into the promised land, as they spy out that land, there's a return that uh, the spies return and say that there's giants living in the land. And they use that term, Niflum. And so, continuing on, verses uh, 5 through 8 says this. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at that time, all the time. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. And then verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here what we see is that the sin and wickedness of man had continued to invade and continue to overtake man so that corruption was running wild. That man wasn't living into the perfect world that God created. God created and, and ordained and set apart a perfect creation. But now man had chosen his own way and it wasn't the perfect creation that God had established. And as he sees it, he sees most likely men taking advantage of one another, men um, hurting one another, hurting those that are, are there above, including animals and women and children. Like he, he looks and he sees the wickedness of man. 
and he judges it. And again, this is where it starts to get a little bit crazy, um, a little bit hard to understand because for me, what I want to do, what I recognize is that I, I have come to know God as a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. And the truth is, is that God is all of those things, but all of those things don't fully capture who God is because God is also a God of justice. He's also a God uh, of of. Uh, like I said, mercy, but he's a God of, of vengeance and he's a jealous God. And so while all of these are true, no one single or, or few single attributes can fully kind of encompass who God is. And so as I, I look through this and I start to wrestle with the idea of God judging the world, what do I do with those thoughts? How do I wrestle and manage through that? And, and for me, what I think as I read through this, I think that verse 6 here really kind of sets the tone. If you will, it's kind of the motive, I think, behind this. I think when you read verse 6 standing by itself, it says this. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. See, I think as I read this, I think that this is the motive behind everything, that God was troubled by sin. He was deeply moved. He was saddened by that. He saw the wickedness of man, and it prompted something for him. He had to do something. It wasn't in anger. It wasn't in spite. It wasn't in fury. In fact, I think that that, that 120 years or at least 100 years kind of even proves that, that God just didn't in his anger just destroy the world, but he waited. He was long-suffering. He was patient. And I think that that time was, was I, I truly believe, I can't really find this in Scripture because there's, it doesn't speak to this, but I think that God's desire was that for men to turn their, their, from their will to his will. And I think that that time was God allowing men to possibly turn from their will to his will and to repent of their sin and to not walk in the way that they were, but to walk in the way that God would have them. And I think that that, again, that 120 years, about 100 years at least, kind of go to prove that point. And even as what you'll, we'll see in, verse, or in chapter 7, you'll see that even after the ark was, was finished, God waited seven more days. As, as the animals, it seems, or appears to come onto the ark, it was seven more days once the ark was cre- uh, completed, and then the floodwaters came. And so I think that it's not in anger and in fury that God punishes the world. Although there is obviously a side of that, we can't ignore that it's there. We can't pretend that that's not there. But I think it's more in a remorseful or in a saddened state. I read, uh, I read this from one of the commentaries that I was looking at this week. It says this. It says, when God looked at his creation and how sin had infiltrated all of mankind, God was grieved at sin. The Hebrew word be- uh, root behind the words uh, variously translated as relent, repent, be sorrow, and grieve, is NHM. In the, uh, in the origins, the root may have reflected the idea of breathing or sighing deeply. It suggests that a physical display of one's feelings, sorrow, compassion, or comfort. When God's repentance is mentioned, it, uh, the point is not that he has changed his character or, or, that he, or what he stands for. Instead, that we have a human term being used to refer rather inadequately to a perfect God and necessary divine action. 
And so I think as we look at that, I think that that's really the heart. And, and I was trying to come up with a comparison of, of how could I explain this, an illustration maybe that would, would help illustrate that point or maybe kind of hit home for a lot of us. And I've got two kind of ideas um, that I'm hoping kind of make sense. The first is what I thought of is when, uh, if you've ever had an animal that's gotten sick, maybe it's, maybe it's gotten older or it's, um, you know, past its prime, if you will. It's, it's got some type of a condition or, or something going on that at some point what you recognize and you realize is that for that animal to continue to su- survive, there'll only be pain. There'll only be hurt. There'll only be, be heartache for you and for that animal just suffering. I think that maybe that's the way that God views the earth as he looks at his creation that is tainted and corrupted by sin. I think that he looks at his creation and that is the feeling that he gets. That it's just a deep sorrow, a hurt, a, a, a desire to want to make things right and to not allow this to continue on because it's not the way that he would have it. And so if you've ever been in that situation where you've had to put maybe an animal down, um, it's a very difficult time and place uh, to be, right? Like uh, my mom, uh, when I was a kid, we had a dog. It was like the first family dog that I can remember. Uh, The dog's name was Sparky. Isn't that the awesomest name for a dog ever? Sparky. It's just, come here, Sparky. Anyway, um, I didn't name the dog. That was my mom, I think. But, uh, but I remember that as Sparky got older, um, it was time for Sparky to be put down because of medical reasons. This was kind of the, the best option for the dog. And, and I remember that uh, my mom had kind of gotten tired of the idea of pets. Like, she was kind of done with it. Like, okay, I'm ready to not. But on the day that that happened, there wasn't any excitement. There wasn't any, yes, finally, no dogs. There was remorse. There was sadness. There was, there was a heartache there from that. And I think that that is kind of a picture of maybe what God is feeling in this moment, is that it's difficult and, and, and challenging to do. The other example that I thought of is that my wife is a pediatric nurse, um, and she works over at DuPont Children's Hospital, and um, there's certain situations to where, even in the pediatric unit, that there's certain times and situations that the best thing to do, the most merciful thing to do, is actually to take a child off of life support. And she's in a unit where she sees that happen. I don't want to say that she sees that happen all the time, um, but it does happen, and even in cases where it's a non-accidental trauma, meaning that there's abuse there, meaning that this isn't something that happened by accident. Maybe they didn't intend to go as far as they did, but even in the cases where it's a non-accidental trauma, there's never any rejoicing and celebrating in that moment. In fact, for many families who get to that point, that is the worst decision or the hardest decision that they will ever have to make. If you can imagine kind of the emotions of, of a situation like that, maybe, I, I'm speculating, maybe we begin to see where God is. We begin to experience exactly what he's feeling in that time where he's looking at his creation that hasn't followed the will and the way that he had wanted them to go. And so because of that, he needs to act. And so I think that those are two examples that I have that, that again, Genesis 6-6 kind of shows God's motive in that. Genesis 6 says, The repentance of God is his proper reaction to continued sin and evil in the world. Sin filled uh, filled his heart with pain. 
Again, this denotes no change in his purpose or character. It only demonstrates that God has emotions and passions and that he can and does respond to us for good or ill when we deserve it. And that wasn't me. That was a a commentary that I had read this past week. And really what we see is that when God sees the world, which wasn't the original world that he designed, but it had been corrupted by sin, God looked at his creation and sees a world that could no longer be good, but would only bring pain. God in his mercy decides to remove a generation. So God decides that in 120 years that he would bring judgment on mankind. God is merciful and long-suffering, but he's also a God of judgment. And as mankind continued to spiral deeper into sin, God was going to introduce a terrible display of his justice. And I believe that like Noah, we live in a corrupt world as well. We live in, in an in a day and age where sin continues to corrupt, it continues to invade every corner of man's heart. And I think as I look through this, one of the other questions that for me brings maybe, uh, maybe some excitement or some joy, some, some hope in the middle of this, is that as I look at this and I see that God's response was to destroy the world at one point, what does that say for us that are still here today? For me, what that says is that God still has hope for us. Because if he did it once where he just judged all of creation and wiped out everything that was except for one family and animals, man, he could do it again. But yet, we're still here. We still breathe. We're still experiencing God's grace and we still get to call on him before it's too late. Like it's not past a point where God has already decided that we are now in a place where we can experience God's hope. It tells us that there's hope for us. Continuing on, um, at verse 8, it says, And then Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is kind of a, a change, right? This is kind of the, if you, if you were watching a movie, this is where the music, the scene kind of changes, and it turns from judgment and wrath and, and kind of the, the emotion that that is. And then it changes more towards, but God found favor in Noah. And for me, this is exciting because I think that what this alludes to, as terrible and as how crazy the judgment of God would be on his, his creation, I think that the story of the flood is not just about the destruction of the world, but it's more about God saving Noah and his family. It's about God saving Noah and his family, bringing salvation to them. And, and I think that that plays into what we see later. And so verses 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 9-12, continuing on, it says this, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. But verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on the earth had corrupted their ways. And as we look at this, one of the things that I think is important to, to picture here is that Noah, it doesn't say that Noah was without sin. In fact, what's kind of a, a crazy uh, look at this as you continue on, if we don't have time to look at it today, but if you were to jump to Genesis 9, the end of that, what you see is that after the ark happens, you know, the, the animals get off, Noah and his family gets off, they're told to be fruitful and multiply the earth. Um, what you actually see is that Noah, like, plants a vineyard and then gets drunk on the wine. Like, it's the first recorded act of drunkenness that we see in the Bible. And it's a little bit confusing because you're like, man, I thought that Noah was pretty awesome, but that seems like you shouldn't do that, right? Like, as you look at that, it looks kind of bizarre, and I've always for years wondered why in the world that was in there, but I think it goes to prove a point that Noah wasn't perfect. 
Noah still had sin, but yet the difference was is that Noah's motives were pure. He desired to obey God. He desired to follow him, and he desired to live a life that would be pleasing and honoring to God. In fact, as you see, as God begins to speak about to do the ark, you see his response towards the end of of chapter 6. And so I think that it's important here that we understand that Noah wasn't perfect. He was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. I think that that should be the mark of us as believers, that we walk faithfully with God. It was, it was more of a heart condition than it was anything else. God looked at Noah's heart, and he found favor with Noah. So continuing on, this is what it says. Actually, let me read uh, what Hebrews 11:7 7 says. Uh, Hebrews 11 is kind of the chapter of faith, if you will. As you look through it, you see all of these things that people have done and how it was accredited unto them as righteousness. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11:7. 7. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he... He was con- uh, he, by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. It's by his faith that it was accounted unto him as righteousness. God looked at him. He saw his motives. He saw that he was sincere in his heart and he was obedient to him. I think that that's what we need to look at in this passage. If there's a takeaway for us is that we should be people that really strive to be sincere in our faith and be obedient and faithful to what God calls us to. Continuing on in verses 13 to 17, and we're going to start to move a little bit quicker here. This is what it says. It says, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, uh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long. 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. A cubit was basically a standard of measurement that was from the tip of the elbow to the tip of the, uh, the pinky. Generally, it was about 18 inches. It could vary from, I think, like 16 to 22, but it was generally standardized at 18 inches. And so that would put the arc at about 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So this ark was a big ark. It's not like the, the ships that Christopher Columbus sailed on, like the small ones that got them there. This thing was one and a half football fields long. Three levels, pretty wide and pretty tall. And so, <coughs> excuse me, verse 16 says, Make a roof for it, leaving, uh, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit, again about 18 inches high, all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make it lower, and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Continuing on, 18 says, But I will establish my covenant with you and will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Verse 22, this is pretty amazing to me because as, as I would be process, processing this, I can imagine that Noah's sitting there going, uh-huh, okay, everything, okay, everything, all right. 
I can imagine that there's a, a little bit of shock maybe there. I, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of reading my own emotions into this story of going, how would you feel if like God just started speaking to you? You in your backyard maybe planting something, right? You're just doing some gardening. You're like hoping for carrots this year or something. I don't know. I don't know if those are difficult to grow. But like you're sitting there and then God starts speaking to you and he tells you that he's about to wipe everything off the face of the planet. Pretty big news, right? <laughs> Like, hey, this is kind of hard pill to swallow here. And then how would you respond to that? I think I would need some time to be like, okay, Jesus, let me, let me just process and I'll get back to you. I mean, there's nothing to get back to because you've already decided and you're God, so there's that. But I think I would respond a little bit like, wait, what did you say? <laughs> That's a little bit crazy. But in verse uh, 22, it says right away, it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I'll be honest, I wish I had that faith. Many times as God asks me to do something or I feel like, maybe I'm not even sure, maybe I feel like God is leading me to do something, I'm like, hmm, give me some time. Let me think about that. Let me pray about that. But at least in this story, in this passage, it says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And we don't know the full story of what was going on behind the scenes. Maybe God continued to speak to him. Maybe he didn't. I feel like this story gets even crazier if God kind of gave him instructions and then Noah didn't hear anything for a while. But maybe God continued to speak. Maybe he didn't. We're just speculating at that. But Noah was faithful and did justice, everything as God commanded so picking it up, at Genesis chapter 7, we've got a couple more verses, and I think we're doing okay on time. I think I can make that, that happen. Genesis chapter 7, it says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pair of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their variations alive, uh, various kinds alive throughout the earth. Verse 4, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and I will wipe out, I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I've made. And again, we see it in verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded. And I, I do think it's an important thing to point out here as we look at this. I think one of the big questions is how on earth could, could Moses possibly get all of the all creatures onto this boat? Yes, I get that it, that it was like a football and a half uh, sized boat, but still, how would he do that? And one of the answers here is that it would be every animal according to its kind. So it doesn't believe, uh, for example, there's over 200 different breeds of dogs. We don't believe that 200 breeds of dogs were on the ark. We believe that there was one or two, there was a male and female dog that ultimately created the breeds that we see. The difference between that and, and the other kind of view, that's, that's called microevolution. Microevolution is small changes that happen within a species, and it happens over time, usually quickly. Macroevolution is kind of the belief that um, where you get uh, apes turn to man, that's the difference between micro and macro evolution. And so I think that's important, important to part out that it wasn't every single animal. It wasn't probably, there probably wasn't mountain lions and tigers and uh, lions. There was probably one type that ultimately led to the species that we see today. So continuing on, Genesis chapter 7, verses 6, it says this, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great, burst, great deep births burst forth, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kind, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. Verse 19, they rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains at a depth of more than 15 cubits, or about 23 feet. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that has the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The wa waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Continuing on verse uh, chapter 8 says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The waters receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window that he had made in the ark and set, uh, sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth under the water uh, until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because it was... There was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself. He waited seven more days and again sent out the, the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there, was a, uh, a, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the seventh month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the waters had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Verse 15, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds and animals and all the creatures that move along the ground came out. Together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds Everything that moved on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. 
Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky. And on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea, they are to be given over into your hands. I think it's interesting, uh, just a question here. Does that mean that before the flood, the animals weren't fearful of man? I, I don't know. It's just a question as I read that I would love to one day ask Jesus. Uh, verse 3, it says, Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that is, has lifeblood still in it. This is an argument for um, actually having your steak well done. I know that that's not a very favor, favored, like Josh would disagree with that, but I disagree with him. So anyway, um, and your lifeblood will be, uh, uh, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God, God has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and I will, it will be a sign of the covenant between me and earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all life on earth. I know that that was a lot of scripture. Thanks for hanging with me. You guys still with me? You still here? Okay, only a few couple people have nodded off, but that's okay. I get it. So here what we see is as they come off the earth, God makes a promise. And what's interesting is that a covenant was, was a solemn binding agreement that was between two people. But what's amazing in this covenant, God doesn't really ask anything of mankind or of Noah, but God takes both sides of that covenant and makes an oath, a promise saying, I will never again destroy the earth by flood. And I will never again destroy all living things by flood. And so it's pretty amazing that God sets up a covenant to, we even get to see when there's a rainbow, we, it even stands to this day. That covenant, at least we don't see in scripture where that covenant came to an end. And that covenant still is with us to this day. And so as we look at this, the seal or um, kind of the, the uh, I put the seal uh, or the sign of the promise is that rainbow that we get to see even to this day. And as we look at the account of Noah, to just kind of give three 
kind of ideas or, or thoughts that for me as I summarize this, I thought for me as I read a long passage of, of Scripture, it's helpful to kind of summarize the main teachings of that. These are the three things that I put the account of Noah teaches us. One, that God is holy, hates sin, and will punish it with the full force of His justice. You see that through the Scripture, but in that, God is also patient and long-suffering that he waited 120, 100 years for, for the fulfillment of his judgment. And then the two, two following points are kind of the, I think, the bigger picture that God provides us with a means of escaping his wrath. He provided Noah and his family an ark. He could have just destroyed all of humanity. He could have started again. He could have done anything that he wanted to. If he was God and if it was an anger and fury, he could have gone, poof, here's an ark. Okay, you guys get in, you guys but he waited. And I think that that proves, uh, at least in my mind, that it doesn't prove biblically, but it, it, for me, the interpretation that I read into that is that God was patient and long-suffering, that he desired man to come to know him, and that he provide a, a means of escaping his wrath, and that God patiently calls us to safety in his merciful provision. God provides a way for us, even when there seems to be no way, that God calls us in his mercy, in his love, in his sorrow, in his sadness, in seeing the corruption of sin and how it's not what he created this world to be and what it, it looks like. He provides a way. And that's kind of the tie-in for us. As we look at the account of Noah, the flood didn't fix the problem of sin in the world. As Noah gets off the ark, as his sons get off the ark, sin continues to, to invade and prevail in the hearts of man. And so God had to establish something that would remove that sin, and that's when we start to see a picture of what Christ would do for us about 4,000 years later. And so as much as this is a story about the destruction of the world, why we can't ignore that, I think it's more so about the salvation of Noah. And this is what I put. I put really the ark is a foreshadowing of the salvation that Jesus offers us by his death on the cross. In the same way that Noah was saved by nails in a wooden ark, Jesus saves through nails through a wooden cross. On the cross where Christ died, the wrath of God toward sin was satisfied for all that choose to accept his salvation. And again, while we can't ignore the judgment that God sent upon the earth, I think that we look at this more as God chose to save Noah and his family. And in the same way that he chose and he gave salvation to Noah, he also gives us the opportunity to receive his salvation and to be saved from the coming judgment that will one day come. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, it says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This morning, as we are talking about the flood, as we're talking about uh, this, this account of Noah, uh, we also get the opportunity to, to take communion. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite Gary up here. But I think it's really important that we understand that this ark was a foreshadowing of what Christ would do through the cross. I think all Old Testament and, uh, and all of the Bible really points to the cross. It's the center of, of history, if you will. Everything changes at that moment that we have been made right and established in a, in, in a right relationship back again with God. And so as we partake of communion, we get to reflect on what Christ has done through his death on Calvary. And so I'm going to invite Gary to come and to prepare us for that. So I'd like to invite the ushers and also the servers to come up at this time.
And as they do, there's a couple logistics. One is that if you could use a gluten-free station today, we have one over here to my right. And then also, as the ushers come forward, they'll dismiss you.